Hello and welcome to tonight's programme. The bells of St Nicholas's Church in Galway there ringing out earlier at 7 o'clock for seven minutes celebrating the 700th anniversary of the founding of the church in the heart of Galway City. Later we'll talk with the rector, the very Reverend Linda Pilo, about this remarkable anniversary. Later too, we'll hear from author and journalist Paul Vallely, whose history of philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg was released a few weeks ago. Given that we here in Ireland rank highly amongst countries for giving to others, what is the motivation for the wealthy to share their money? But first, a walking tour of Dublin, conducted by guides who were once among the capital's homeless, is the brainchild of founders Tom Austin, Pierce Dargan and Gareth Downey. It's a non-profit social enterprise, giving a voice to a community that is so often talked about rather than listened to. Here's one of the guides, Shane Howell, describing the venture. And another reason is to sleep in here. You get a better sleep in this park than you would in some of these nighttime only hostels. You're talking 16, 70 yoga mats all in the one room, and it's just total chaos. Hello, folks, you're all very welcome here today. My name is Shane, and I'll be your tour guide today. Um, I'll tell a bit of my own story, but, um, but I, I also incorporate what life is like in the homeless hostels, wandering the streets every day for seven years. Yeah. It's horrific. It's a big impact on your mental and physical health as well. Shane Howell there from Secret Street Tours. Well, Shane and his fellow guide Kenny Ivers join me now to tell us more. Shane, a corkman in Dublin for the last 11 years, how did you come to hear about the Secret Street Tours? I was actually in a, a treatment centre and I was reading the I was reading the newspaper one day and I seen a picture of my friend on it. I read it and uh, I seen what he was doing. He was, uh, he was doing tours, homeless tours. I didn't kind of get the history part of it, you know. So when I left that that particular place I, I actually went up and watched his tour a few times um, and I just made up my own one then around the Dublin 7 area where I where I would have spent a, a lot of time on the streets you know and in the hostels and that. What's the reaction of people when they find that their tour guide has a, a very special insight into what it's like to be on the streets of Dublin? Um, well people engage with it like and it's it's a different way of um I suppose telling people, showing them another side to Dublin, you know, a side that a lot of people don't see. Well, I spent seven years on the streets, you know, um, between one all different homeless hostels around Dublin. Um, I showed them where I used to sleep rough. Um, and I incorporate the history in with it, you know. Um, the history is decoration, you know. Um, and I share a bit of my own story. And, and look, I get a lot out of it because when I'm passing the Capuchin Day Centre, I, I know nearly all the lads going in and out of there. And look, if it... I would have been going in there for a long time myself, so if it gives them a bit of hope as well, you know. It's a it's a message of hope as well, you know, um, which I get a lot out of it, you know, and taking the school kids around and that. It's good to let them see another side to Dublin, you know. Well, that is interesting, Shane, as you say, because a lot of countries try and hide homelessness from, from tourists and visitors, uh, and you've kind of turned that on your head, haven't you? Well, you're seeing the real stuff. It's reality, you know. Um, anybody can... Google the history of Dublin, but this is the real stuff, you know, what's what's really happening, underground stuff, and it's a lived experience. And with you as well this evening is uh, Kenny Ivers, and K- Kenny, you're uh, one of the newer guides to the process. What's your story uh, and finding yourself becoming a tour guide? Well, um, uh, I was in treatment with Shane, and um, we ended up moving to a recovery house. We would have been there together, and when Shane was in the recovery house, I seen him like practicing for the tours and that, you know. And then um we, the two of us moved into a two bed house and he was doing the tours so I decided one day to go out with him and to ha- uh, to, to see what it was about. And uh, I went out and I looked and I says I can do that, you know. 
And a question to both of you, because, you know, we often find that when people talk about, you know, faith and religion and, and the work that different faiths and religions do, one of the places that it does touch people is if they're homeless. Did, did you come across much support from people of faith? Um, I would have stayed in a lot of places, um, religious places, not down through the years, you know, just not just in Dublin. Like, um, look, I definitely believe that something has me here, you know. Um, when you're living a life like that, the, the life expectancy, 37 and 40, you know. Um, and I definitely, there's a lot of faith in my family. So my mother used to light the candle every night for me, you know, um, not knowing where I was. And I suppose that's just filling in the gaps now as well doing this, you know. Um, but yeah, a guardian ma- angel. Well, the man above is up there. My nan is up there. And one or two more looking down at me. You know, I've no doubt. Because um, sometimes I wonder how I'm here at all. You know, but I am, and I have a purpose to be here now. And Kenny, if you would be, uh, uh, you know, of an age that grew up in the 1980s in Ireland, where uh, your religion was everywhere, did did you have a, a a difficulty with it with that? I did for a while. Um, I wouldn't be a strong religion, like you know, but like um, I would have been helped by religious, um, like Peter McFerry. Um, I would have stayed in some of his places. Um, say uh, Salvation Army as well. I would I would have lived in one of their hostels like for four years, you know. So like, and there is good people out there, like I mean, that help you along the way, you know. And tell me a little bit more about some of the people that you would have come across, you know, for example, with the Peter McVeary Trust. Uh, was religion uh, presented to you or was it just the fact that they came from a religious background? Um, no, it wasn't presented. No, it was just more from a religious background. And I had a lot of resentments towards religion, like I mean, when I was in addiction. Do you know what I mean? But I was like morally just um, I was looking for something to blame. And that's kind of what you do when you're in addiction. Like, you know, what I mean, you always look for something to blame, you know. So I do have a little bit of faith now, you know. I wouldn't be strong, but I, like, uh, I would, you know. So. And for the both of you at this stage now, um, it, it seems that things are on the turn. They're going in the right direction. Um, what kind of hopes do you both have for the future? Jane? I have a lot of empathy for, um, for people on the streets, you know. And look, let's call a spade a spade. I could be back there tomorrow. I have to keep my head above water at all times, you know. Um, like I spent nearly 23 years in addiction. So look, every, every day... Every day is a school day, you know. Um, but I'd like to give back to the to the most vulnerable in society, you know. Because there's no fun walking around at three, four o'clock in the morning on a winter's night with no roof over your head, you know. Not normal. Wet socks. I've dry socks on today, you know. And that that's they're the things people don't think about. I get up today. I can I can turn on this the radio in the morning. I can open the fridge, have a bite to eat. I can have a warm shower. The simple things in life, you know. Um, and sometimes I do be on the bus there and I look out and I see someone putting the cardboard down, jumping into their sleeping bag, you know. Um, and that was me many a night, you know. So, so yeah, I definitely have faith, yeah, you know. I'm interested that both of you have got to a stage now where you both have a voice. I mean, you're standing in the street and you're holding the attention of maybe 10, 15 people in front of you. Now that you've got that voice, what's the strongest thing you want us to hear? Basically, to highlight the homeless problem, that it hasn't gone away that it's, um, it's nearly worse than ever. That's my point, anyway. Um, Shane? What I really try to highlight is how difficult it is to get out of, you know, um, when you're in that deep, you know, like you're walking the streets all day, and then if you try to get in somewhere to get help, they're asking you to show stability. Um, it's very, very hard to show stability without a roof over your head, you know, um, especially if you have addiction problems. Um, and I dare to highlight all that, you know. And look, as I said, it's, it's definitely about hope for me, you know. Um, 
to give people hope that they can get out of the situation because there's times there you're walking around and, and you just have no hope, you know. You're walking up, you get put out of a place there on the keys and there's 16, 70 yoga mats in the one hall, you know. You come up in the morning at half, seven, eight o'clock with the fluff in your pockets and and the wind is whistling up the River Liffey, you know. You're just empty inside, you know, so it's 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 a message of hope as well. And look, it's not all doom and gloom like the tour. You throw a few laughs in as well, you know. Um, so you have to use the, the wit to get your boy sometimes when you have nothing, you know. You need to have a bit of humour because uh, I think that's what keeps you keeps you going, you know, when things are, are like that, you know. And it gives me a bit of gratitude as well, you know. They say you could be only one pay- paycheck away from being homeless, you know, so nobody... It's affecting all walks of life now. It's not just... Years ago it might be the drinker and that, you know. But, like, should we have nearly 3,000 kids homeless here in Dublin? They're sleeping in hotel rooms with their mothers, two or three kids... There's no proper cooking facilities. It's affecting the kids going to school. It'll have a big impact on their mental and physical health. And I can imagine the stress it's putting on the mothers, you know. This is a mate, this is a big, big problem, you know. And it keeps getting brushed under the carpet. Final question to both of you. Of the greatest kindness you were shown in the time you were homeless. Shane. I suppose um, from my counsellor at the time, you know, I, I relapsed over 10 years ago. Um... And when I was on the streets all day in the rain and that, I used to call intern and she made sure they rang me son and things like that as well, you know, to keep in contact. Because um, it wasn't priority at the time, you know. You like you weren't really thinking about things like that. Like, just worried about getting through the day, you know. Yeah, definitely. She, she, and still to this day, she's she's a friend, you know. And for you, Kenny? Um, I have to say, like... Um I'd lost my faith in uh, my faith in humanity, and um, I was sitting on the street one day, and um, a, a lady um, from Kilmine, her name is Sue White, and, and she found me on the street, and it was the first time in months that actually someone talked to me like a, I was a human being, and she put her hand out, you know, and she actually got me into a stabilisation program, and that's like a, started this whole ball rolling, you know, and then here I am, hence here I am today, two years clean, like you know, and so. Yeah, if there was ever like a divine inspiration moment, that was it. Like, you know, <laughs> I have my family back in my life, and uh, there, um, last year I was asked to become a godfather for the first time. Like, and you know, like before they would never because I was in addiction, but now, like, you know, family is important, you know, so I'm rediscovering all that, you know, so it's good. So, if people want to take the tours, it's secretstreettours.org is the website. Uh, gentlemen, they're, 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 they're back. You, you were virtual at one stage, but you're back on the street with the tours uh, over the next couple of weeks and months. We're back out there, yeah. We're just doing the social distancing thing and that, you know. Um, yeah, we're out there. Shane Howell and uh, Kenny Ivers, thank you both for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. And you can find out more information on the tours on their website, secretstreettours.org. Well, the dictionary defines a philanthropist as a person who seeks to promote the welfare of others, especially by the generous donation of money to good causes. But what motivates a millionaire or billionaire to distribute their wealth, even to the point, as recently demonstrated by Irish-American Chuck Feeney, of exhausting all their funds? Paul Vallely is an author and journalist. He's written extensively on Pope Francis, including his book Untying the Knots, The Struggle for the Soul of Catholicism. He co-wrote Bob Geldof's autobiography, Is That It? And he's the editor of The New Politics, Catholic Social Teaching for the 21st Century. And he's advised the Catholic bishops of England and Wales. His latest book, Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, has been released at a time where more billionaires than ever are sharing their wealth. 
Paul Vallely joins me now from his home. Paul, welcome to The Leap of Faith. The book itself is actually as a result of a form of philanthropy. It is. I was approached by a philanthropist who uh, wanted uh, a history of English philanthropy written because one hadn't been written for about 50 years. And uh, I uh, uh, had a look at the subject and I quickly realised you couldn't write a history of English philanthropy because you had to go back to the ancient Greeks and uh, the uh, biblical Hebrews. They were both very important. And then when you get into the modern era, it goes so global with uh, you know, the influence of Bill Gates and so forth. Uh, that it's impossible to kind of pull out the thread of Englishness. So it became really a, a kind of history of Western philanthropy. Well, let's look at the modern version of it now, because we have names like Bill Gates and you know, we have all names that of people with lots of money. If you're a bit of a cynic, you might wonder, why are they giving it away? What's in it for them? Well, I think they have a genuine sense of altruism um, uh, and you shouldn't discount that. There's a lot of cynicism about philanthropy, uh, thinking, oh, it's just all a tax dodge or something. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's always more than a tax dodge, because even if you get tax relief on your philanthropy, you're still giving away a lot of money. So uh, there, there, there is definitely an altruistic uh, thread to it. It's not, it's not a, a theme that I've kind of uh, uh, underlined in the book. But um, the, there is a, you are struck by the fact that so many philanthropists throughout history have been motivated by their religious faith. Um, there are exceptions, but by and large, it is a real driver. Uh, when you look at philanthropy, a lot of philanthropy is given to uh, you know, top universities, top medical schools, opera houses and so forth. Uh, and the idea that it's about a transfer of money from the rich to the poor is... is, is, is is not quite right. I mean, in, in, in the States, where the, uh, the big, that's the biggest philanthropic uh, society in the world, uh, only a fifth of the, the philanthropic money uh, is, it goes to the poor and the needy. So there's a sense in which it's, it's a, a philanthropy is used as a kind of consolidation of the position of, of, of these people with, with, with loads of money. Um, having said that, I, I, you, you can you overplay that, and a lot of kind of Marxist academics do overplay that, because the work of somebody like Bill Gates, who uh, you know, he, he's secured the vaccination of 2.5 billion children against polio, and polio has been virtually eradicated now uh, as a wild disease through the world. Um, and you can't go and say that people like Bill Gates have saved millions of lives. So uh, the, the, there's always a balance to be struck. And what my book says is that uh, if we just had a bit more sense of empathy, a bit more sense of heart, a bit more sense of partnership, and not just the kind of uh, an analytical, uh, data-driven, this is the best way to solve this problem, um, business-orientated kind of approach to philanthropy, then philanthropy will be better. Let's talk about two particular philanthropists. I want to talk about Bob Geldof and Bono. Well, Bob Geldof and Bono, and in the book I also mention Angelina Jolie, they are very much in the tradition uh, which goes back to um, just after the Enlightenment. Um, in, the first man in England to be called a philanthropist was John Howard, who named, his name survives in the Howard League for Penal Reform. He was a prison reformer, and he dedicated his whole life uh, and eventually died of, 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 of a, a, a fever. Um, decades and decades going around trying to improve the conditions in prisons, not just in, in England, but also throughout the continent. 
And uh, uh, he was followed by um, William Wilberforce, the anti-slavery campaigner. Those were the kind of men who were known in, the, in their day as philanthropists. They weren't givers away of money. Now, that sense of activist, agitator, philanthropist is carried through in, in, into the modern era by these celebrity philanthropists like Geldof and Bono and Angelina Jolie, uh, who use their, their celebrity to draw the media spotlight to causes which they think um, uh, ne need rectification. And, and very often it's about directing the, the, the far superior resources of government to problems that can't be dealt with by philanthropy. So it's a form of philanthropy. They're in. They're definitely in a philanthropic tradition. And there's an, I've got an interview with Geldof, amongst all the other interviews with philanthropists in the book. And to be fair, I think you also co-wrote uh, his autobiography. Is that it? Uh, so you have an insight into the way the man thinks. Does he consider himself a philanthropist? Well, he, he has actually given away some money, but uh, he he doesn't uh, he, he doesn't publicise that. So in the classic sense, he's a philanthropist, but. No, I mean, in the interview in the book, when I say to him, you know, you're a philanthropist in the um, uh, in the tradition of people like Will and Wilberforce, he uses the F word fairly emphatically to suggest that he isn't. But my, my analysis is that uh, this is this is part of the tradition of philanthropy. And, and, and I also include things like comic relief uh, in, in, in that, because there's a democratization of philanthropy in that uh, people give through their workplaces um, the, the, uh, the, the, there's crowdfunding now. There are lots of ways in which everybody gets involved in what was once the, you know, the province of the of the super rich. What's in it for the giver? Um, I think if you uh, discount those kind of uh, venal motives, which we were talking about, which inspire all that cynicism, when you talk to philanthropists, what you get is. Uh, uh, they convey a sense of huge satisfaction from from what they do. And some of them have made mega fortunes uh, in, in high tech ways or, or, or whatever, uh, say they get much more satisfaction from giving their money away than uh, than from spending it in the first place. If you look at somebody like Chuck Feeney, who uh, the Irish American philanthropist, who he's given two billion uh, dollars in total to in Ireland, north and south, and and that's part of eight billion dollars uh, fortune that he got from from duty free shopping. He, he's given it all away. Just last week or the week before, he spent out his his foundation. The man who's been in charge of um, uh, of of giving away all of his money is interviewed in the book, and 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 he explains you know the principles on which they did it, and. Chuck Feeney uh, had a meeting early on with Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, they said oh, he's our inspiration in giving because he was called the James Bond of philanthropy. He was giving his money away. Nobody knew it was doing it. He was, it was all anonymous. And they said he's such an inspiration. They came up with the idea of the giving pledge to persuade um, philanthropists to, to give away um, at least half of their money before they died. Um, and, and this notion of Chuck Feeney's giving while living he sold this to the others by saying, it's fun, try it. So there is a sense of huge satisfaction that philanthropists give from, from, from giving their money away. And uh, the uh, most rich people are not philanthropists. You know, two thirds of them give away nothing at all and the rest give away small amounts. But the ones who, who do do it do get this enormous sense of satisfaction from doing it. Paul Valley, author of Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you.
Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg is published by Bloomsbury. The bells of the Collegiate Church of St Nicholas in Galway have rung across the city every night this week at 7 o'clock for seven minutes. This to mark the 700th anniversary of the founding of the church. Ringing the bells there is 17-year-old Chloe Gardner, daughter of the rector of St Nicholas's, the very Reverend Linda Pilo, who joins me now from Galway. Linda, welcome to the Leap of Faith. What's the significance of the seven minutes of bells at seven o'clock? So the significance is that this is our 700th anniversary year at St Nicholas Collegiate Church in Galway and we had many great plans underway for the year of celebration but obviously they didn't all come to fruition. However, um, in preparation for our 700th anniversary year we had a campanology school which if you like is a bell ringing school and we had some students and they ring out the bells for us regularly and intentionally it was for uh, Sunday service or weddings or funerals or special occasions. But in the last few months, they have been rung out as a message of hope and solidarity and reaching out to people who may be feeling isolated and alone and in thanksgiving for our frontline workers. So the bells have a very significant place in Galway City. And the uh, seven minutes at seven o'clock for seven days uh, is being run currently as a fundraiser because obviously all our normal uh, means and measures to raise funds for this medieval church uh, are under severe pressure. So we are running the bells at the moment for seven minutes at 7pm for seven days as a fundraiser. Now, I imagine one of the challenges when you think of bell ringing, the image in my head is of a whole lot of people standing around pulling on ropes. How have you managed that? Because I think in your church, it's slightly different. That's correct. Yes. So uh, in many years of history um, and the first bell was there, would you believe, since 1590 uh, and then the other nine joined them. So there's the peal of, of 10 bells in 1891. Uh, so the ropes uh, are no longer there. You can see the holes in the ceiling, uh, but it is all connected in the bell tower and we use pedals, um, a bit like a scale on a piano or a keyboard, although not quite the same. But nonetheless, so the, the bell ringers will actually push on the pedals or pound the pedals uh, so that they chime in the bell tower. Does it take so a great deal of physical effort? It takes a huge deal of physical effort. It really, really does. And I suspect the seven minutes uh, in itself is quite demanding on those uh, who are ringing out the bells and um, they're quite heavy to push down upon. And I cannot uh, reiterate that enough. Those who play really need to be strong. It's hard, hard work. And your daughter is one of the campanologists. She is indeed. She is indeed. So she uh, was the bell ringer uh, through uh, lockdown um, and because I could live stream. So we, we live stream as well. Uh, so obviously we were the same household and obviously her mum was the rector of the church and she was a student and really enjoys playing them. So she got her, her workout every Friday at 12 noon and um, we live stream them. So she is one of uh, the campanologists. There's another lady as well and there's four gentlemen. Linda, tell me a little bit more about the 700 year history of, of the church because it, 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 it has some great names attached to it. Everybody from Cromwell to Columbus. 
It has fantastic names. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is said uh, that Christopher Columbus prayed there before he set off on his voyage. Um, and then a lot of the damage that is done in the church, uh, sadly, was done at the time of Cromwell. So we're actually uh, on a journey ourselves at the moment to try and conserve that building and bring it back and bring out some of those historical features in the church as well. Let's just go back to the bells for a moment. And I'm curious about what's been the reaction of people in Galway. The reaction has been overwhelming, really. Probably since uh, pre-COVID, we were launching our 700th anniversary year with ringing the bells in and we were overwhelmed. They were live streamed and we had a watch night service and the bells uh, rang out at midnight and the ships in the port responded. And we were overwhelmed uh, by the following that that had and by the amount of people who arrived and were there at the church for the peel to go out at midnight. So I think it'll probably be part of the Galway calendar. And then obviously during lockdown, the bells, um, when they've been live streamed, as Chloe was ringing them at 12 noon on a Friday, uh, it reached the States, Australia, Europe, parts of England, people were ready and waiting for us to go live at 12 noon every Friday. And it was really powerful in how even in Galway, we could still reach people. And even though people were feeling isolated and alone and missing their loved ones, the bells were a wonderful sign of hope and the church reaching out and letting people know that out of sight is definitely not out of mind. Linda, of course, Galway was in the news earlier in the week with uh, the number of young people who were out celebrating, I suppose, the start of their university career. You have a, an association with the students in a, in a pastoral role. Correct, yes. So um, I am chaplain, well, assistant chaplain at the NUIG. Uh, so I'm available should the students need a chaplain at any stage in the college. And I work uh, with Ben as well, who is the uh, Roman Catholic chaplain. And I suppose the idea is that while there might have been some people who were out celebrating, there were probably other students who had their head down and were getting into the study already. Absolutely. I felt disappointed initially and worried for Galway uh, when we woke up to those scenes and heard what was going on. And I also felt very bad for the uh, young people and students who were not out. And I think we've got to be very careful that we don't tarnish all students with the one brush. Um, it obviously was a pocket of students, uh, quite a few of them, and there are two third level institutions in Galway, it must be said as well. But there were many students who were studying, who were working and who were not on the streets um, and were not uh, socialising at that time. And there are students who are socialising, but they're doing it carefully and they are socially distancing as they are out socialising. Uh, and that's OK. But I think we need to be very careful and cautious uh, for all our students, uh, some of whom are travelling through a very difficult time in their lives and transitioning time. Uh, and as we all find, navigating through COVID is not by any manner or means easy that we don't tar all our students with the same brush. Provost to the very Reverend Linda Pilo, thank you so much for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. It's my pleasure and thank you for having me on. And that's our programme for this week. Join us again next week at the same time. On sound was Dave Gibson. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. Our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan. From them and from me, Michael Cummins. Good night. See you all tomorrow night at seven o'clock. Thanks for joining us.